So we are, we're in the middle of this really thick and rich section of Scripture. It's, it's, really, it's like Heinz ketchup. It is thick and it is rich. And um, it's red in your Bibles, if, you have, if your Bible uses red letters, for the teaching of Jesus. And I've shared this, I think I've shared this the last couple times, but I want to keep saying it as a way of encouraging you, if you have margin, to be with this text on your own time as well. And, and you may have other things that you're diving into and you can't do everything. I get all that. So don't, don't hear this as like, got to do this. Um, not at all. But I want to share like the frustration I feel with like skipping a rock each week <laughs> over the top of these teachings. It's, it's feel, it's, that's what it feels like all you can get done. And because uh, they, they just beg for more. These, this chapter 13 to 17 of John just desperately begs that you go further in. And you probably know this about me. I have such a resistance to like consumer community. I have a resistance of like, I'm going to give you a quick message and give you three applications to take away. That, that absolutely drives me up the wall, that, that approach. I, I want instead to, that we would be nurturing a community of engaging God's spirit and his word, looking to Jesus together. And, uh, and that is our vision. Um, and as we do life together, not predominantly on Sunday mornings, but in our common life communities, that is our vision, is that that dynamic of Christ and word and spirit is, is fully present. Not to mention God the Father. I don't want to leave <laughs> the preeminent member of the Trinity out in that conversation. So all that just to say, we're really in it big time with the teaching of Jesus right now in these chapters. Um, there's been a distinctive shift in as, when we step into John chapter 13 to 17, and really going forward, but the, other, the last three chapters are a little bit more passion, crucifixion, resurrection, and then some, some things after the resurrection. But in these chapters, there's a distinctive shift in Jesus' teaching with his disciples. Don't, don't miss that. It, the, the one way I would describe the shift is it's shifting from a teacher with his apprentices, and it's not that that's gone, going away, but it's becoming more intimate. And, it, and it's a little bit more of Jesus pouring himself out in his teaching and inviting them into his life. And so, he's, like we saw last week, he says, I'm not calling you servants anymore. I'm calling you what? Friends. So he, he's inviting us in really close, his disciples really close as fellows. And it's quite amazing. That's one reason why the, these chapters are so very vital to try to get at as best as we can what he's inviting us into. And we're going to see more of this today. 
Um, and, and like I said last week, one of the other struggles in, in teaching this section is there, there's, you, I have this hesitation to say, to give too much commentary on itself because the words of Jesus itself, you, 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 you kind of want that to stand. You know, you don't want to wander too far away from just his words. You know, there's this, there's this desire sort of to just like get up here and just read that. And then just sit down and let the Holy Spirit be with us rather than do too much. Uh, I don't, I don't want to get cute with it. I don't want to wander off the farm too far. I don't want to lose the weight and the encouragement, maybe even sometimes the correction of his, of his words. So I've, I've really prayed, let, Lord, let my words really point strongly. And that, that should always be true, right, in preaching. But especially you feel that with these. Um, last week, we covered this first half of John chapter 15, which is really resides sort of at the center of it. It's really amazing. Jesus is with his little band of disciples, and he uses this rich, familiar garden imagery, agrarian imagery. He talked about God the Father being the gardener, you know, and I encourage us to give that reflection and thought. If you want more of that in a conversation, talk to George. He, he and I talked about it out in the foyer last Sunday after God the gardener, and I'd grab him and just say, tell me what you told Jim last week, and that'd get him, that'll be enough maybe just to get him started. But, but that, that's what we're after. I, I told that story to say that's called doing theology together in community. Like, my, my hope is like, <clears throat> I, I'm not like the dispenser of insights for the community. I try to do that a little bit. But really the work is, is when we're taking it and then as community, engaging his word and spirit together. And sometimes what might get said in the foyer might be much more transformational for you than what gets said up here on the stage. And that's, that's what we want. So, Jesus in chapter 15 has been painting this picture of intimacy. Remember the invitation last week, abide in me as I abide in you. And he's using this gardener vine branches uh, metaphors as a way of showing the kind of fruit that the gardener is after in his branches that's going to flow through this vine and we didn't have much time to unpack it. We're not going to unpack it. But he talks about things like joy and friendship and mutuality that's going to come from that. So that was last week. This week's really, really interesting. Jesus is still, at least as I imagine it, and maybe this is not right, he's still in the room with his disciples, but there's a turning this week. And here's how I've imagined it. I've imagined them maybe being in Peter, Peter's mother-in-law's house, because that's where they sometimes would be. And, and they're in a room, and the, this, Jesus is having this really intimate conversations with him about friendship and joy and fellowship. And then, as I have imagined it, it probably didn't go this way, I'm just saying how I've thought about it. There's a window in that room to the outside and it's as if Jesus looks out the window as he's talking and maybe you just see some people 
going about their business. You know, Jewish uh, business people, uh, community people, uh, maybe a Roman centurion or two going by. And it, it's as if he starts talking as he's looking out the window. And as he does, the subject matter takes on a whole new, not just content, but perhaps tone. So that's where we're going to listen to him. So we're going to start in chapter, uh, chapter 15, verse 18. So here it is. I had a picture that I tried to find of Jesus looking out a window. I don't know how to use artificial intelligence. Eric reminded me that would have helped you, Jim, if you would have done that. The picture I came up with was, it, it, the way it showed up was really creepy. It was like creepy Jesus, and so Jeremy wisely and redemptively took it off. <laughs> anyway, so I'm picturing Jesus. Yeah, <laughs> okay. There, there. Thank you, Jeremy. Okay, so let's, let's hear Jesus, if it helps you look out the window and speak. Here's what he says. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it has hated me first. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But you are not of the world, for I chose you out of the world. And because of this, the world hates you. Remember what I said to you, a servant is not greater than his Lord. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they've kept my word, they'll keep yours. All this they will do to you because of my name, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, this wouldn't be sin, but they have no excuse for their sin. The one hating me also hates my father. If I did not do the works among them that no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and they have hated both me and my father. So the word might be might be fulfilled, which has been written in their law. They hated me without reason. Let's pray together. Lord, speaking of windows, open the window, the apertures of our thoughts and souls, our affections, our wills. Lord, those places that we live in our inner lives, open the windows of our community because we're not <clears throat> more, or we, we are more than just a gathered group of individuals. We're also a people. Lord, would your spirit have his way with us as we learn together, as we sit at your feet <clears throat> and hear you? That's our ask, Lord. Do with us what you wish. Speak to us how you want. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
If the world hates you, where did I put my water? Eric, yeah, Eric has it. Thank you. I'm, a, I'm sorry. I'm afraid if I don't have it, I'm gonna, it's going to cost me and you. If the world hates you, Jesus says, be mindful. Remember, maybe your translation says, keep in mind that it hated me before you. I bet that got the disciples' attention. Does it get your attention? What, what questions does that cause to come to mind for you? And what, what does he mean by world, anyway? I mean, the world is sort of in, an impersonal word. The world itself can't hate or love you. What does he mean by, by it? He must mean the people in it, or something related to that. If he does mean the people in it, which I think he does. They have hated me without reason. Then who is he referring to? What's he mean by this? I think these are important questions. They're not questions we're going to dive into. And side note here, like, this is a really important and big topic when we start talking about the world and culture and as, far, as Jesus' people and as a Jesus community, how are we to be in that culture? We're, we're jumping into that a little bit with our Great Commission training right now with as, as we think about in the political web arena, not simply, not so much what to think, but how do we think about this? How do we live in this world? <clears throat> and we're not... I can't even skip a rock across that. That's, those are big questions that we deal with that must be part of our conversations, be part of what we engage as a community. But Jesus says here, so we're going we're to stay on track here on the text. Jesus says there's something about his disciples that's otherworldly. <clears throat> and, that, and that's something that's otherworldly the world's not going to be happy about. If you were worldly, he says to them, if you were as, as of the cosmos, that's the Greek word that we can, you know, gets transliterated, cosmos. If you were of the cosmos, the cosmos would love you as its own. The world loves its own. The world loves that what, which who belongs to it. That is its nature. But it cannot, thank you, Whitney. Now she's got to move a whole world of chairs. Or one chair. You're smarter than me. The world loves its own. It cannot, it will not love that which is not its own. That, that's a fundamental underlying truth here. That too is its nature. It will love that which belongs to it. It will not love that which does not. You are not of this world. So Jesus, what, again, just quickly, what do we, let's revisit that for a minute. When Jesus says you're not of this world, what's he mean? 
Well, he can't mean you don't live in this world. Because they did. He can't mean you're not from this world. Because they were. I mean, just on a very simple surface level, uh, they had homes and addresses that were in the world. And so do we. So that's not what he means. He's not advocating escaping the world. He's not saying transport on the next kingdom of God spaceship that comes by. And, and again, you see already, like there's so much to be said here about our relationship with culture and the world. And there's been a lot of academic work done on this by a lot of different kinds of thinking people. And as you might imagine, there's different perspectives that come out of that. There, there was a seminal book about a long time ago, I don't remember, 60 or 70 years probably, called Christ and Culture. And it, it deals with like Christ in the world, Christ against the world or culture, Christ above the world or culture, Christ under. I mean, it, it gives some categories. And then some other scholars like D.A. Carson has come by and said, he kind of got it wrong in the way we're supposed to be thinking about that. So there's a lot here that we can't get into. But I do wonder this. I wonder sometimes how aligned our thinking in the, in the capital C church has been with what Jesus is trying to get at as he talks about our relationship to the world. I just wonder, even looking back over the last three years and watched how the church has engaged with these sometimes combative issues, and it, it's often made me it hasn't made me feel like I've got the answer, I've got it right, but it's often made me feel like we're missing it in some really important fundamental ways. It seems like we often look at group individuals or groups of people who have a different political persuasion, perhaps, than we do, and we call them the world. I would be careful about that. I would, I'd, I'd encourage you to think a little more deeply than that. Or we look at someone with a different morality than us, different standards of morality, and we just automatically judge them as they're the world. Well, I mean, I'm not saying those things aren't in the mix. I would say I would be careful about that. And I would, I would remind you for a moment, who, were, who was it that was hating Jesus in his time? I don't think I need to answer it. I would just say, do business with that. Where was the opposition coming from for him? So I'm not answer solving these equations for you. I'm saying we have to learn to think about this, and it takes a fair amount of living and, and, and getting it wrong and getting it occasionally stumbling into right to, to start making sense of this. And I don't, I'm, I have a suspicion that we've not, as a church, done that well with this. So, be that as it may, Jesus says, you are not of this world. And then here's something important he says, and here's why. For I chose you out of the world. He's basing their being not in the world not because of their position, 
not because of their knowledge. Well, a little bit, we'll get into that. Not because of their morality, not because of their political persuasion, but for one thing. Did you hear it? Because I chose you. I chose you out of the place you were, out of the world. So who is the one not of this world? The one who's been chosen by Christ. If you've been chosen by Christ, then you have been chosen out of the world. Then who are the people of the world? Those who are not with Christ. We don't have to go further outside of that as we think about this for our purposes today. I wonder how his words are landing with his disciples. I imagine him looking out the window and then coming back with them and saying this. You were once of the world, but you are no longer, for you have been chosen out of it. This, this truth anchors the whole teaching. I chose you. We who have attached and aligned ourselves with Jesus. That has happened because we have been chosen by God. What comes to mind for you when I hear chosen? When you hear chosen? It, is it, you've, you've probably seen Toy Story, right? Where the squeeze toys get chosen by the big claw that comes down and grabs them and and do you get an idea that it's like that? That some random kind of choosing God sent his claw down and just plucked you? Like, is that what it is? I don't think so. I think this was a very personal, knowledgeable, thoughtful decision by a wise and loving God. How do we make sense of that? Why would he choose me? when I know my own heart? Why would he choose you? And I only have one answer. Love. It's the only answer I, I can give. Um, beyond that, feels like it's above my pay grade. He chose us because he loved us. And I have to put a period there. We can rest in that. And we also can hear what Jesus has said in other places, like, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So we may ask, if God chose me lovingly, thoughtfully, what did I have to do with it? Now we're into some theology, aren't we? What did I have to do with it? Well, listen to a text we've already looked at way back in John 1. John wrote, For as many who received Jesus, so those who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Receive and believe. At least there, it's identified. That's our part. Receive and believe. But here's, here's the mystery of it. And it, when we get into this, we're in the mystery. 
<clears throat> we receive and believe, but guess what? God's in the middle of that. It was he who granted us the right to become children of God. We just didn't. Just like he didn't randomly choose us. We just didn't like make our minds up plainly that we're going to be chosen. That we're going to be people of God. There's more going on. Because our, our salvation is so thoroughly awash in the activity of God in our lives. We can take absolutely no credit for it. <clears throat> and I think that's about as far as we're going to get on figuring those kinds of questions out. Our salvation is mysterious. It was birthed from God. We receive and we believe. But even there, God was in the middle of it. I love these words. There's a British uh, pastor that I'm going to read a couple times from, Charles Spurgeon. And um, many of you know him, familiar with him. Oh, listen, I love this paragraph. Listen to this. Man chooses those who would be most helpful for him. God chooses those to whom he can be most helpful. Man chooses those, or excuse me, God chooses those. Let me start over. We select those who may give us the best return. God frequently selects those who most need his aid. It's the very opposite way of choosing. We select those who are best because they're most deserving. God selects those who are worst because they are least deserving. So that his choice may be clearly seen to be an act of grace and not of merit. I think that's well said. So Jesus wants us to see this reality that our selection by God in love places us in a state of separation from the world. You don't choose that. It's just the nature of being chosen by God. You now do not belong in the world. And Jesus says... Because of this, the world will hate you. Strong words, isn't it? Jesus says, remember I said, a servant is not greater than his Lord. If they persecuted you, they'll persecute me. I want you to hear the abiding language here. Remember from last week, abide in me and I'll abide in you. It's what he's doing here. If they've kept my word... Their response to you will go likewise. If they persecute you, you should also understand that that may happen as well. We could chase so many rabbit trails here, but we won't. But as we have aligned ourselves with Jesus, so our life is now aligned with Him. We are enmeshed with him we are abiding in his life and all that comes with it including suffering that's what that's the subject here the world will hate you suffering is a part of sharing in his life you can't have abiding and then pick and choose which parts of abiding you want 
as we share in his life, so we share in his suffering. It's part of what it means to be his follower. The disciple is not above the teacher. I don't know if you've heard this said, but I have. Maybe I've seen it on a bumper sticker. I don't know. Jesus didn't suffer so we wouldn't have to. That's not true. Now, there's a sense in which there's truth in that, right? I think we understand that. That he, he paid, he's a substitution for our, the punishment that was ours. So in that sense, there's truth in that. And let, let the bumper sticker be for a moment. But he didn't suffer for us so we wouldn't have to suffer. He gave his life for us so we would share in his life. And when we suffer, not if, when we suffer as he suffered, we are participating in his sufferings. Jesus adds that the world does not know the one who sent me. He says it's not that they lack imagination or faith or belief or morality. He says they don't know me. They're not in that abiding life. They don't know it. The problem is not lack of information. People need information. But he says they have no excuse because of that. I came and spoke to them. I showed them signs. And they have no excuse. And he says so. And then he drops the bomb. The one hating me hates my father. Now let's return to who are the ones hating him. Were they not the ones ensconced in the religious culture? They were his people. His own tribe. To, to imply that if they're against him, they're against Yahweh. If I do not do the works among them that no one else had, they wouldn't be sinful. But now they've seen both me and my father. So that the word might be fulfilled. And Jesus is quoting two places in Psalms, Psalm 35 and Psalm 69, they have hated me without reason. Christ had give, given people sufficient reason to believe, to have this believing loyalty. They can pay them, that's the term we were using in CLC this week. Believing loyalty in him. But they did not possess it. They had not received it they did not receive him. So Jesus says, they've hated me without reason. It's made them so irrational. This has, historically speaking, been a real hard lesson for the church. This whole understanding our place in the world and what we should expect from the world and the reason it's been so hard is because we, we live in two worlds. <laughs> we live in a world that's tangible, that our feet is on, that we can see, our senses are attuned to it all the time. We're in its presence. We work and live and play in it. And in many ways, we love it. And Jesus says, well, that's okay. You don't belong to that world. It's important to make a distinction here, when Jesus is talking about the world here, then he doesn't mean you should hate fishing, you know, 
That's not what he's talking. He's not talking about you should hate the physical stuff of the world. You, you, should, you should hate walking in nature. That world hates you. Don't reject that. Or you should hate family because they're part of the world. That's not what he's talking about. He's asking us to go deeper with what we understand here. He's talking about the system of the world. The values, the mindsets, the loves, the attachments of a disordered system in opposition to God that has a whole host of spiritual enemies and forces in acting in concert with it. A system that hates Christ and will hate its followers because it does not belong to it. Emily Pons, if she, she leave the room, she here. She, I, I felt like she was touching on it a little bit last week. She was, um, I think I didn't ask her permission, but I think this is okay, Daniel. You can come hit me between the eyes after. But, but, but she was talking about, as she started, you know, they'd been to the Taylor Swift concert and like the, the night before and, and like you could, you could hear the, this kind of tension she was wrestling with. Like, you know, she's an amazing artist. We, we in, enjoyed it. We, her, her music is like, you know, we, we can, like, participate in that and appreciate it in some levels. But then she, we also heard her, like, like it, it, I'm not quoting her here, so please don't assign the words to her, but, like, it felt like a worship service for, for a human mortal a little bit, you know? And it's like you could hear Emily say, I don't belong there, you know? I, there's a part I, we could really enjoy that artistically, but there's also we're feeling like we don't, not us in some way so like that's no wonder these are hard lessons for the church because that's that's just an extreme example maybe not even extreme but like that's kind of how we live in the world no wonder it's hard because we live in two worlds and christ came announcing and teaching about and bringing this other world that he called his kingdom the kingdoms of the heavens he would call it his god's kingdom he said that's the place of belonging. And I'm going to repeat what I've already said. We live in both worlds. And it takes a fair amount of living and learning and doing life and study to live well in those worlds. You don't just stumble into it. But we have a good teacher to help us. He knew how to live in both worlds. He knew how to enjoy the things in the world. He also knew there's a sense in which he didn't belong. But remember who made it. He made it. He knew that intrinsically it wasn't evil. It was just a wash in evil and opposition because of sin, because of rebellion. So he's giving this vitally important teaching about our relationship to the world and what we should expect. And they have to stand. His words stand. Because we live in that world. We're surrounded by its systems. But we live in another world. The kingdom of God. His kingdom is safe and secure. His kingdom is going to be there for you. His kingdom is there for charity right now. 
It's going to be with you when you get sick and unemployed or your, your child goes awry or your child gets sick and dies or you lose your parent or whatever it is. He's going to be there and he's going to uphold you. He's going to keep you. He's going to keep you during your disappointments. When this job, this marriage, this life, this house did not give you what you were hoping it would give you. He's going to keep you in his care. You can count on it and the other world does none of that. It will not hold you up. It will not keep you. It may promise that, but it will not be loyal to you. It will not stand by you. It will move on to someone or something else. It is its nature to do so. Jesus said, expect it. This is a teaching about expectations. A servant is not above his teacher. And we should not think because we live in the free West that we are immune from the kind of suffering Jesus is getting at here. That would be a sore, uh, sorely mistaken and to miss Jesus in what he's trying to say. I think we've been conditioned, at least I have, to kind of orient my thinking to avoid his suffering. Now, I'm not championing going looking for it going and making, making it up. I'm saying that's a wrong-headed way to live your life. If your life strategy is to avoid hard things, that itself is a part of the world system that's going to disappoint you. Jesus is addressing our expectations. He is teaching that we must accept his fate. The fate of the world's rejection to the point of contempt and hatred. I can't soften this teaching for us. It has to stand. He's teaching us this. But here's what I can be. Here's what I can do. I can be with you when suffering comes. And here's what you can do. You can be with each other when suffering comes. You can stand and support. We can stand as the body of Christ together when it comes. Greater love has no one than this, Jesus said, than one who lays down his life for his friends. The only way the world will love you is if you belong to it. Yet, the moment we stop trying to wrongly love the world, the moment we, try, we stop trying to impress the world will be the moment we also begin to learn to freely love it in Jesus' way. To really love it in ways it cannot love itself. We love the world from our identity that is enmeshed with Jesus. And when we love the world from that identity, the world will be loved. Whether is that your neighbor or your parent or your child or whoever it is, Jesus teaches that the world would hate us, but he never taught us to hate it back, did he? Never. He taught us to love it back. And he showed us how.
I'll close with a quote and then a, another reading from our British pastor. Adam Ramsey said, we should be the last people looking for trouble in the world. We can all say amen to that. But when it shows up at our doorstep, we should be the last to be surprised. I want to close with a reading um, I came across this week from Spurgeon. It's, um, it's not up there. It's, a, it's going to take a minute to read it. But I want you to, you know, stupid question or request. Be, be with these words and hear it. Um, if you like it, I can send you a copy. Spurgeon preached, I'm sure this was from a sermon. Beloved, I cannot tell you all that Christ has done for sinners. But this I know. If he meets with you today and becomes your friend, he will stand by you to the last. You shall be hard at work tomorrow, but as you wipe the sweat from your brow, he shall stand by you. You will perhaps be despised for his sake, but he will not forsake you. You will perhaps have days of sickness, but he will come and he will make your bed in your sickness for you. You will perhaps be poor, but your bread will be given you, and your water shall be sure, for he will provide for you. You will vex him, and you will grieve his spirit. You will often doubt him. You will go after other lovers. You will provoke him to jealousy. He will never cease to love you. You will perhaps grow cold to him. And even forget his dear name for a time. He will never forget you. You may perhaps dishonor his cross. And damage his fair fame among the sons of men. But he will never cease to love you. No, he will never love you less. He cannot love you more. And when the splendors of the millennium shall come, you shall partake of them. When the end shall be and the world will be rolled up like a worn out vesture, and those arching skies shall have passed away like a forgotten dream, when eternity with its deep sounding waves shall break on the rocks of time, and sweep them away forever. Then, on that sea mingled, that sea of glass mingled with fire, you shall stand with Christ. Your friend still claiming you. Notwithstanding all your misbehavior in the world, which has now gone, and loving you now, loving you as long as eternity shall last. Oh, what a friend is Christ to sinners. We cannot settle for the world and forfeit this.
We're going to come. Will, you guys can come up. and We're going to have some worship, and then Will's going to give you opportunity just from a reflection. And, and uh, my, my ask this morning is that you would get started and just do business with that. Where is, what is my relationship with the world that God's chosen me out of? And ask the Lord to speak to us. You may need repentance. You may need to make a confession. We'll say a little bit more about that. Let's pray and then let you guys have it. Lord, we've heard your word. Would it stand now? God, would we not feel the glow of it, the heat of it, and remove ourselves from its presence. Be with us, we ask, Holy Spirit. Be with us.